to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com in this episode we talk a lot about prioritizing your sex life sex is not always natural and sexual connection does not usually come naturally in an ongoing way without work prioritization and effort one way that I love prioritizing my sex life is with Dipsy. Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S&S. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and characters, no matter who you're into or what turns you on. With Dipsy, pleasure is your only priority. They even have sleep and wellness sessions if your current pleasure is just rest and relax. Relaxation. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S&S. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A, dipsystories.com slash S-A-N-D-S, dipsystories.com slash S&S. Now to the episode. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am honored to welcome Cindy Darnell. She is a clinical sexologist and sex and relationship therapist with over 20 years experience in Australia, the US, and UK. She offers online courses about sex and pleasure and consults individuals, couples, and polycules globally. She's a clinical associate of Pink Therapy UK and board affiliate for University of Wisconsin Stout Sex Therapy Certification Program. And her first book, which we'll talk a little bit about today, Sex When You Don't Feel Like It, The Truth About Mismatched Libido and Rediscovering Desire, uh, will be out mid-2022. Her academic works are published in the Journal of Sex and Relationship Therapy and the Journal of Sex Education. So all you slutty scholars out there, give those a read. And multiple popular media outlets worldwide. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you so much. I'm really glad that we have made some time to make this happen. I'm very excited to be talking with you. Me too. Me too. Okay, so in your recent journal article in the Journal of Sexual and Relational Therapy entitled Sexuality, Sex Therapy, and Somatics, in bed with the most likely bedfellows, so why aren't they? Again, all you scholars out there should read it. Uh, you wrote this quote that I'd like to read that that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, the quote reads, just like a caged bird is unable to fly, not because of its wings, but rather its context, when the environment does not inspire eroticism, adaptation happens through disembodiment. Somatically speaking, it's safer to disconnect from the body and sensations than risk erotic embodiment in an environment that's hostile to it. Perceived flaws and shortcomings instead become internalized, and clients believe the problem is uniquely their own rather than a product of a broader context that includes the mind, the body, and the environment in which eroticism is allowed to flourish. Such a great quote. Thanks. So That's how- the shit I lie in bed at late at night thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how that might keep some people up. Um, so how do you define erotic embodiment? 
I think, I mean, embodiment in general is the capacity to pay attention to the inner machinations of the body at any, you know, in any state of, of being. Erotic embodiment is being able to stay with the body while arousal is rising within us. So what tends to happen, you know, in a lot of um, kind of mindfulness commu- mindfulness communities, yoga communities, any of these sort of, you know, more traditional embodiment communities, they're all very much into embodiment often at the expense of erotic embodiment because the minute we start bringing arousal into our mindfulness practice or eroticism into our yoga practice, it starts to become something a bit more edgy for some people. It starts to become something a bit, uh, you know, uh, the whole the emphasis of mindfulness is almost to sort of, um, you know, transcend the difficulties of the body but in order to experience eroticism we must be able to embrace the inner machinations of the body even if at times what we feel is not especially pleasant but in order to be able to feel everything the good the bad and the ugly as it were we have to be able to tolerate the sensations within us including rising arousal and rising eroticism, which a lot of more traditional kind of yoga and mindfulness communities will overlook this practice, that they they will sort of talk around eroticism, but they don't want to kind of go into it. And so that's where I think erotic embodiment is about actually really being able to stay present to the sensations of arousal as they appear within us as we start getting turned on and not either, you know, scrambling through a sexual encounter, whether solo or partnered, to, you know, to get it over with, um, or getting so excited by the horniness of it and being like, oh, my God, I have to come, mm-hmm. and, you know, and then it's over, to be able to to move into those sensations slowly and stay there and sort of, you know, and to savour it, to be able to, to really be with those sensations is one thing to be able to be with those sensations in the presence of another human mm-hmm. is a whole other thing. And it's actually a lot more complicated than a lot of us pretend that this whole thing about, you know, sex is natural when you're with the right person, it's just easy and effortless. And that's just complete lies. Yes. So, <laughs> and I'm all about myth busting because there are so many myths in sex, yes. as I'm sure you know, and your listeners know. Um, and, you know, sex is natural is one of them. That's one of my big um bugbears is the people who are who try to fight with me on the internet so sex is natural it's like it's not it's it's learned you know all of us have to start somewhere nobody is good at fucking the first second third time they do it a lot of people aren't good at it after 20 years it's because it's a learned skill and if we don't invest the time and energy into learning how to do it for ourselves and for the people that we're with um it it, it it's 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 complicated and this might be an obvious answer given the the state of the way people talk about sex in our culture, but why do you think some of these other somatic practices, whether that be like traditional somatic psychotherapy or yoga or mindfulness, why are they skipping the erotic component? I think because it makes them uncomfortable. 
Yeah. I mean, it's pure. It's as simple as that, you know. I mean, you know, it, it's starting to shift a little bit, but traditionally a lot of the kind of yoga mindfulness somatics communities mm-hmm. have sort of been the, steeped in purity culture because it's it's been about this sort of transcendence of the body and sort of, you know, things like pushing through pain and, and you know, observing sensations of the body but not getting bogged down in them, not, not identifying with them, sort of observing them like leaves on a stream and this kind mm-hmm. of stuff, which, you know, there's merit in all of these practices. I think they're wonderful practices and, mm-hmm. not but, but and. When we privilege the mind at the exclusion of the body and then when we allow the body to function and exist only in a neutral state but not in an aroused state Mm -hmm. it says a lot more about the discomfort that our culture has and when I say our culture I mean western culture in general although probably more specifically the english-speaking countries do tend to be a bit more uptight I think the european countries that speak languages other than English tend to be a little more liberal with this stuff. I think it's the Americans, the Australians, the Brits um, can be a bit tightly wound unnecessarily about about all things sexual, but quite okay, you know, parading around in sort of skimpy underwear and this kind of stuff. But the minute that we actually start focusing our attention very deliberately on sex, people still clutch their pearls, even though we have had a shift towards somatics. We still have not had a full shift towards uh, eroticism. And, and you know, and really like arousal, actually being turned on, being horny. People are mm-hmm. not comfortable discussing that still. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, it was interesting. I had somebody, I always love to read those uh, pod, those reviews, as you know, but whether it's a book or whatever, like you said, people argue on the mm. internet. I always try not to pay too much attention to them, but take them yeah. in with a grain of salt. But Somebody left a review recently that was like, I'm tired of you talking about like somatics. I feel like you're just like trying to, uh, it's like too spiritual or something like that. Wow. And they so said that I, about you. About, yeah. Cause I've been talking a lot on the podcast about yeah. the nervous system and somatics and, and, and bot and what we're talking about now. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I wonder how we can, yeah. What is happening in our scientifically in Mm. our nervous systems, our brains, when we're disembodied or, or Mm -hmm. embodied, um, and kind of busting this myth that it's just, when we talk about embodiment, that it's not just like a stealing of Eastern spiritual practices, but really so much more than that. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I mean, somatics in its in its current incarnation, you know, is probably sort of 50, 60, maybe 70 years old. Um, but of course, it's much, much, much older, thousands of years older and stemming from, I think a lot of traditional cultures have a version of uh, somatic embodiment. They probably don't call it that, but um, a practice of privileging the, the wisdom of the body as a source of knowledge. So a lot of cultures, non-Western cultures certainly will have a version of that as part of their the way of doing things. And what we have learned about it in, say, the last 20 years is really coming through the research that's been done from neuro- of neuroscience perspective, research around the brain and the relationship between the brain and the nervous system. And so one of the things that I think can sometimes trip a lot of people up is that we can decide that, you know, the 
when we can see all these scans of the brain and we see the brain activity here, it must mean this, or brain activity there, it must mean that. What somatic uh, approaches allow us to discover is that we don't necessarily have to, or first of all, we don't know where the mind lives. So we tend to associate the mind with the brain, but there's no evidence that the mind exists in the brain. The mind Mm. could be in our elbow for all we know. Nobody really knows where the mind is. We know that it exists because we can all say, yes, yes, I have one. But if we think about where it is, we don't really know where it is. So there's there's that part. But because we tend to associate the mind with the brain and people are scanning brains now and seeing all this activity happening, we're going, well, you know, the relationship between the mind and the brain is powerful and then therefore the relationship between the brain and the nervous system is powerful and it's fantastic that science is acknowledging that. Mm -hmm. But from a somatic point of view, we also need to take into account things like, um, you know, the spinal cord and spinal fluid, all of the organs, the liver, the kidneys, the heart, the spleen, the gut, all this kind of stuff is also included in somatics, including the genitals, the anus, the digestive system. All of this stuff is included in this. And this is something I think that still needs a lot more research done into it because when we default to looking at the brain and saying, well, if we're looking at the brain, then we're doing somatic work, or if we're looking at the nervous system, then we're doing somatic work. We are no more our brains and solely our brains than we are, you know, our fingernails to say, Mm -hmm. well, I am what I am because I have fingernails. You know, I am what I am because I have a brain. I think it's, it's too reductive. We need to be able to understand that the entire organism from our head to our feet and every little nook and cranny in between, including the genitals, (laughs) including the genitals and including the anus is part of this extraordinary and extensive network of information and knowledge that we can Mm -hmm. access by paying attention to what is going on inside, which may or may not show up in a brain scan. And if it does, that's great. But that alone is still not an indicator that that's the only part of us that's being affected. We don't know what happens to the heart when we start having orgasms. We don't know what happens to the liver when we you know, withhold an ejaculation. We don't know what happens to the kidneys if we masturbate. I'd love to know. None of that stuff has been researched. And this is where I think, you know, my prediction, I hope, over the next 50 years as we're starting to look into the somatics of sexuality and somatic sexology, we start really looking at the connection between sex and the body and the whole body, not just the brain and not just privileging this sort of traditional medical top-down model that has always been the the view through which we have assessed, you know, the value of knowledge or the value of information that we can actually go bottom up, meaning, so, you know, what's happening in my knees when I'm having an erotic experience? What effect does the orgasms have on arthritis? You know, all this kind of stuff is stuff that I think we really need to spend a lot more time researching. And, you know, potentially I'm excited about where these things are going to go over the next 50 years if I'm still around to be part of it. (laughs) I hope you are. And, And look, I mean, one of the, a long living person who recently passed, rest in peace, Betty Dotson, did a mm. lot of masturbation and lived till 90 plus. So, See, there you, go. you know, if, there if you that's go. any indicator, you have a long life ahead. <laughs> okay. So just going back to kind of what, what you were talking about a little bit. What are some of the main reasons that we see this disembodiment happening for folks, like with Mm -hmm. clients that you work with? What are some of the main reasons that 
folks are getting disembodied during potential erotic times? I mean, the first one, obviously, is, uh, well, maybe not obviously, but certainly very commonly, is trauma. And there's different kinds of trauma. And I think, again, you know, certainly through the internet, primarily Instagram and TikTok and things, you know, trauma has become this buzzword and everybody's like, you know, I have trauma, I've been traumatised, you know, da, da, da. There's trauma and then there's trauma. So, you know, explicit, uh, you know, capital T trauma, complex trauma is the result of uh, an act of violence or some sort of extensive violation once or, or over time um, that happened to people that, that really makes it hard for them to be able to function in the world in a way that brings them joy and peace. So that's that's complex trauma. Then small t trauma is growing up in a society, and this is where the sex part comes into it, growing up in a society that says sex is bad, sex is dangerous, um, or things like, you know, boys don't cry, um, girls are sluts, vaginas and yonis and whatever you want to call them uh, are disgusting and smelly these are all kinds of small t trauma and why i say that is because those sorts of ideas and notions exist in again in many western cultures i don't know about other cultures but certainly most western cultures have versions of this story embedded within them and so children grow up mm -hmm. believing that sex is you know exciting but dangerous and pleasure is accessible to boys and not to girls and that sex you know that our bodies are not necessarily something to be trusted and then the extra piece of that of course is if we grow up in religious communities the understanding is that your body belongs to god your body doesn't even belong to you so then trying to have a relationship with this object that you inhabit that actually is not even yours depending mm -hmm. on the perspective all of these things can be traumatizing so yeah. how this shows up in sex is that people find it really hard to be able to make sense of and process all of these uh, stories that they've grown up with. And the way it tends to show up most frequently for people is in disembodiment, which is a sense often of numbness or a sense of anxiety and profound discomfort especially in the presence of erotic energy. So the minute they start noticing that they're getting turned on, they either mentally sort of disengage and start thinking about something else. Or, yeah, did I do the dishes? What's on my to-do list? <laughs> right, you know, or the body starts getting turned on. This is especially true for vulva owners. They'll be getting lubricated. They'll be getting engorged. The body is starting to show signs of arousal, but their mind is like, I can't feel anything and often sort of complete numbness can happen. So these are just examples of different ways that erotic disembodiment might show up for people. And this is extremely common. I would say more people than not will experience a version of this. And it's relatively straightforward to sort of address and work with. It's not that complicated to undo, but so many people will spend years in this sort of disembodied state around their sexuality before they find a way to, to start to reintegrate the sensations and the thoughts and the feelings all together, mm -hmm. which is ultimately what I think produces the most enriching erotic embodiment. 
Yeah, I would say some of the main things that I see the disembodiment happening, and, and in your article and in some of the science communities, you might hear this as arousal non-concordance or right. desire non-concordance, which basically means like a that we can experience physical arousal in our body, but not desire to engage sexually, or sometimes the reverse, right? We yeah. have a desire, but our body is not uh, connecting with us in the way that we would like. And yeah. um, I think this is both important to talk about um, I've talked about this in other episodes, but when, t- when we talk about trauma, um, this can happen. And this is sort of the the answer that I give folks of like, when you say like, it wasn't your fault, you know, like even if you had physical arousal or physical orgasm or physical pleasure, that doesn't mean you wanted it right. on a desire level. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the main reasons. I think the other one that I see is uh, what I would call, uh, what is the word that I use? But basically like, observing yourself as if you were watching from above mm-hmm. spectate spectatoring yeah, yeah um so looking and being like oh how does my how do my fat rolls look from that angle how do i smell can they see this ingrown hair um and instead you're watching yourself as if like a director from above critiquing as right. opposed to really being in the moment and, and in your body um and then there's that shame spiral i would say that's the main the main one that i see coming into my practice yeah. in addition to these kind of trauma narratives that you are discussing yeah yeah absolutely and that's the thing it's you know even those sort of that spectatoring that sense of sort of saying you know my body is not okay or is this really happening to me you know that trauma doesn't have to always be stemming from a violent kind of you know huge event in your past it can be something as sort of banal as um you know having having a complicated relationship with body image and when i say banal i don't mean to 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 play that down the importance of that it's just that i think sometimes people tend to think of sexual trauma as having been sexually assaulted and yes that's part of it um but it can also just be through the sex negative body negative messaging that we all absorb through you know through film and and tv and music and all these kinds of things um that we don't even notice are happening we've just sort of all drunk the kool-aid as it were and and it's not until we find ourselves in a situation where we're not experiencing pleasure or we're not sort of having the sort of sex that we would like to have that we start recognizing oh maybe something's wrong um or maybe there's another way that i can be with this situation it doesn't have to be so complicated like the way i'm feeling it every single time where i'm starting to dread sex or i don't like looking at myself or you know, these kinds of things. These are all the different ways that it can show up in our bodies when we're, you know, disembodied sexually. In this episode, we talk a lot about prioritizing your sex life. Sex is not always natural and sexual connection does not usually come naturally in an ongoing way without work, prioritization, and effort. One way that I love prioritizing my sex life is with Dipsy. Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S&S. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and characters, no matter who you're into or what turns you on. With Dipsy, pleasure is your only priority. They even have sleep and wellness sessions if your current pleasure is just rest and relax. 
relaxation. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S&S. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A, dipsystories.com slash S-A-N-D-S, dipsystories.com slash S&S. Now to the episode. And just going back to what you were talking about before, for me, when I think of the the word arousal, it doesn't always mean sexual. It's your body turning on to something. Um, And so I think a lot of times people get afraid of that because sometimes it feels similar to anxiety uh, or it feels similar to that fight or flight response in in a smidge. So it's like the heart rate starts increasing, the breath starts shallowing a little bit. And so sometimes I think, the person can interpret or the nervous system can be like, oh, danger, because something is becoming aroused. So it, it instead becomes interpreted as like an attack. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing that where, again, you know, in traditional mindfulness practices and embodiment practices, it's about, you know, calming the body and relaxing the body to the point of, you know, almost sort of being asleep, which is great in many contexts but not when you're trying to have sex you need to be you need to be alert and relaxed at the same time which is what makes it a bit more complicated for the body to do Uh, and so then if you struggle to be relaxed and and excited at the same time then you're probably going to notice that your erections are not as firm as you'd like them to be or your you know your wetness isn't going to be as wet as you'd like it to be or orgasms feel a lot more complicated for you um you know these are all the sorts of things that can happen when your body is out of sync with with your mind so what are some of the ways that folks can come back to their bodies and and attain this erotic embodiment uh, in a culture that doesn't often or always inspire eroticism? (laughs) Practice. You have to practice being sexual. You have to practice being sexual by yourself. You have to practice being sexual with others if you want to. Um, But there is no other sort of cheats way around it you have to practice being sexual which is why you know i was saying before when people tell me sex is natural it just sort of happens when you're with the right person and i'm like that's horse shit it's just complete (laughs) horse shit you know because there's all this other stuff going on that it's just you know you might be sexually confident with one person and not so much with another for whatever reason. There could be reasons that are known or not known to you. Yeah, or like it um, felt, quote unquote, easy in the very first couple encounters, but then yeah. it shifts because mm-hmm. all the other stuff comes into play. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, how do we do it? We practice. We practice through masturbation. We practice through talking about sex. You know, one of my phrases is you talk about sex like it matters, that why, that we're much more comfortable, you know, sharing recipes and talking about sports and the weather, but we're not so comfortable talking about sex because of the ick factor, because of the vulnerability factor. So we have to practice talking about sex like it matters. We have to practice talking about sex when we're not horny, you know. Uh, We have to practice talking about sex when it gets complicated. In that same vein, how do we how do we continue to create erotic contexts for us? So if we are that quote unquote bird in the cage, Mm. um, in the cage of our culture, of our societal narratives, um, Mm. how do we make a, how do we start making a context that is erotic, that does inspire eroticism? 
We have to access information. We have to access education. So that comes from, you know, listening to podcasts, reading books, watching videos. I think, you know, what's a good thing about the time that we, the times that we live in is there's so much sexual information now for free on the internet, like just loads and loads and loads and loads of information. So when people are like, well, where do I start? It's like just Google, just anything. Over time, you'll then learn to become discerning about which information is helpful and which is not because there's a lot of bad information. With this glut of information, a lot of it is bad. But that said, the more you read or discover and watch videos and listen to podcasts, the more you'll start sort of piecing together the bits and pieces of information that are useful, that are helpful, and they will be based on whether or not they're useful and helpful to you. Mm -hmm. And then based on this... You know, I think the the second issue that sometimes folks struggle with is it's not so much accessing the information these days, it's integrating the information. And sometimes we can get flooded, sometimes we can get into overload. And I notice that when I'm on Instagram, most of the accounts that I follow are sex-related accounts with the exception, I think, of a couple of dog-related accounts that I follow. (laughs) But mostly it's all sex-related stuff. And so sometimes even me, you know, who's up, you know, I'm up to my eyebrows with sex things all the time, even I can get a bit overwhelmed and just be like, oh, I need a break from this. This is too much, you know. Um, But being able to integrate what we find takes time. And so in order to, if we are, you know, going from a trapped bird to a a bird, you know, in a larger aviary, as it were, Um, we have to make sure that we practice patience. We have to allow ourselves time to start integrating some of the things that we find and that you can't do everything and you can't do everything overnight. It's things are going to take time. And depending on what it is that you want to experience, that you want to learn will determine the direction that you go and how fast you go. So, for example, um, you know, if you want to increase your capacity and for solo pleasure, then something like that is is probably easier to do because it just means setting aside time for yourself, you know, either every day or every other day or whatever's going to work for you to touch and experience yourself and masturbate and buy toys and lubes and those sorts of things. If it is about being more confident with a partner, if you're in a relationship, then that's going to be a bit more straightforward because you can just make a request to say, hey, I'm really interested in us having a sort of richer sexual connection. Is that something you would be interested in sharing with me? If so, I've got a couple of videos here that I found on YouTube or a couple of podcasts that I'm listening to. I'd love to share them with you. Something like that is the beginning of that. If you are not dating anybody or if you're single and you're sort of, you know, swiping and dating and that kind of stuff, it can be, you know, harder again because not only are you navigating getting to know somebody, but you're also going to practice boundary setting and working out how to talk about sex like it matters and also how to integrate someone else's requests and these sorts of things that we've got the issue of consent. So there's so many layers here. Again, when people are like, sex is natural, I'm like, have you even been outside of your living room in the last 20 <laughs> years? Like what? You know, <laughs> there are just so many parts to it, you know. And so no wonder people get overwhelmed. But I really want to encourage people to understand that everybody feels like this, even people who look like they have it all together sexually, 
there's even still, people like us who are studying this right, and doing this for a living. Right. There's still stuff going on in the background. You know, there is still stuff that we have to do. And then, you know, as our bodies age and change, our, our bodies start doing stuff that we're not used to. And so, you know, I recently turned 50 and my body's doing all kinds of weird things that it's never done before. And I'm like, what, what is this alien form that's taken mm. over my life? I was not like this two years ago. And all of a sudden I'm dealing with this stuff going on in my body that has never happened to me before. So I'm almost like, it's kind of like going through a second puberty. It's really, um, mm -hmm. it's really quite something, you know, <laughs> and again, nobody, and now I'm, I'm an expert in this and I was not prepared yeah, as much for this as as perhaps I could have been, and so somebody who who doesn't have the knowledge that I have, that doesn't have the resources that I have, might be really thrown by this, and I completely get it. You know, this is this is difficult, and it's also valuable. It's worth pursuing, I think, because what else is there to spend our time doing except this? <laughs> I mean, something I actually see a lot of, it made me think as you were talking about it, but something I see a lot of with my clients who are not partnered is at first they're like, oh, this is an opportunity to like explore myself and my body and self-partner. But after a while, they start getting a bit tired of it. And they're like, well, what if I never meet somebody? And then they almost end up like shutting down this erotic, uh, curious part of themselves because they worry about not being partnered yeah. um any any tips or advice you have for for single unpartnered folks who are feeling like they're never going to meet somebody i think the best sex you will ever have in your life is by yourself i agree with that because you are always going to be your most reliable lover. You are always going to be your longest term relationship. And that takes practice too. <laughs> and that takes a lot of practice and it changes. And especially on the days where you're bored or you're this or you're that, you know, if, if, if you're bored with your masturbation routine, then do something different. That's it, just, that's what is required. You know, the skills that we need to tend to ourselves sexually as a single person are the same skills that we need to tend to uh, our partners in the same way. So if, you know, if we're unable to, to connect to ourselves sexually as individuals, I don't want to say that it's impossible to connect to others, but it makes it that much harder if we're not able to be able to to stay with our feelings and stay with our bodies and stay with the connections to ourselves. Yeah. It's it's so much harder to do that in the presence of another person. Yeah. I think again, you know, our society is really uh a bit twisted up around this emphasis on on having a partner and having, you know, a monogamous relationship this person this you know mystical magical person who is your soulmate your twin flame your everything um that you not only share finances and house chores with but you also are sexually compatible that's a lot and frankly i don't know a lot of people who have relationships like that they're certainly compatible in some areas not others maybe you're very sexually compatible but you're not financially compatible mm -hmm. or maybe you make good you know, co-parents together, um, but you're not very good roommates and, you know, and maybe then that impacts the quality of the sex. There are lots of sort of, again, these layers of, of things. And so this, 
you know, again, this default of, you know, I, I can't fulfill my sexual destiny until I have a partner. I just, I don't buy that. I just don't believe that. And, uh, you know, there, it's, there is just, you can, you can have a longing for a partner and maybe you're lonely at an existential level. And that I think is real. Absolutely. But that is quite distinct and separate from your relationship to your sexuality, which can come alive in the presence of, a, of different people and they'll certainly bring out different qualities within you that may not be accessible to you by yourself. But yeah. to say that I don't have a sex life because I don't have a partner is, that's not true. You, have, you totally have a I sex life. I think it's life. sad, yeah. Yeah, it's just, not, it's just not the Disney version that we've all been promised was, was destined to us because, you know, if we're getting our sex education from Disney and Pornhub, then we're in trouble. Yeah, those can be <laughs> fun entertainment. But yeah. <laughs> okay, so when you've you've got this new book coming out again, mm -hmm. like we said, it's called Sex When You Don't Feel Like It: The Truth mm -hmm. About Mismatched Libido and and Rediscovering Desire. And mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about. I mean, I can guess what inspired it based on our conversation so far. But tell me a little bit about what inspired this and and some areas of focus mm -hmm. um, that readers can expect. So about. 17 or 18 years ago, I was in a relationship for a period of two or three years and about six months into it, um, I completely lost interest in sex and that had never happened to me before. And I went to various therapists, all of whom were, you know, look, trying to find you know, what was wrong with me in my childhood and all this kind of stuff. And and just as all, a note for listeners, sometimes this can happen after just six months. Like it, it can, you know, yeah. this happens yeah, yeah. at all times in a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I couldn't find anybody to help me with it who was not sort of traipsing down the, the traditional couples therapist thing of, well, maybe that there's something wrong emotionally in the relationship. Maybe there's you know, maybe there's some trauma, maybe there's, you know, this, maybe there's that. And what I discovered was, you know, this was before some of the the more contemporary research had even sort of hit hit our, you know, libraries at this stage and, and that sex was still considered to be the Masters and Johnson model, the, you know, that you, you get in the mood and then you start having sex rather than what Rosemary Brasson tells us, that we sometimes we have to start doing it and then the mood comes later. So having gone through my own struggles with having, you know, an unreliable and inconsistent sex drive, as it were, uh, I started researching all of this stuff. And over the years, I've sort of cobbled together lots of information. And then, of course, working as a sex therapist, so many of my clients would be coming to see me about, you know, I've lost my, I've lost interest in sex. I still love my partner, but I just don't feel like it. And I started to notice that this was not just a woman's problem that was traditionally associated with low libido, that this started to become a problem across genders and across orientations. So it wasn't simply something that happened to straight women. It happened to queer people of all genders and orientations, people in all kinds of relationship configurations of all ages. And so that was really what piqued my interest. And I started researching and that's why I started writing this book because I think, and maybe this is true in your practice too, it's the number one reason certainly that couples will see a sex therapist is to, is to manage 
help them understand and navigate their mismatched libidos because it's completely normal to have a mismatched libido with your partner. That doesn't mean that the relationship is bad or weak or wrong. It's certainly something that needs to be addressed for sure, Mm -hmm. but it's not an indication that the relationship is in peril. And I think a lot of people I know, I certainly was very fearful that it meant that it didn't that I didn't love my partner anymore because I didn't want to fuck them anymore which it I had even nothing to do stuff. with that yeah I mean I'm in this field and I know this stuff logically and when it's happened to me in relationships and required more work I still have that narr- that cultural narrative in my head of like right. oh is it is it just a bad match is it time for a new person are we not aligned right. uh, it, it still comes in yeah it's really really powerful and so you know when I started looking at a lot of the literature that was already available particularly in in book form um, a lot of it did still tend to focus on, um, you know, talking about your feelings and, and being more intimate with your partner and all this kind of stuff. And I think that that's valuable to a point. But where I think my book is different is that, first of all, it really centers multiple genders and orientations. A lot of the traditional libido books tend to be very heterocentric and they do tend to be written primarily for cis hetero women who mm-hmm. you know do tend to make up a big um a big percentage of the people who experience unreliable desire problems but not exclusively um and so the way that my book is sort of broken down into different sections where I look at it through the scientific lens so what does science tell us about all of this stuff and what do we understand about it through a clinical lens but then also the application and then I break it down into the emotional the physical the communication and then even the troubleshooting so you've done all the things that I've said and you've sort of followed the chapters of the book you know chronologically step by step and then you get to the last chapter and you're like well still I'm still stuck and so then the last chapter is like okay then try this try this try this try this to really help people the whole book actually teaches you not how to be like me because I don't necessarily think anybody should be like me. Even I don't feel like being like me sometimes, but more so I teach people how to create what I call their erotic template. And so each chapter there are exercises and practical activities and reflections that help readers build their erotic template. So by the time they get to the end of the book, they will have effectively like a a profile of how they are sexually when it comes to the body. So from a somatic perspective, from a scientific perspective, from an emotional perspective, from a mental fantasy perspective, and also from a communication perspective, each of those five areas will be covered. So they will have a really rich understanding of themselves if they follow the exercises in the book as they go through it. And then they will actually have something to be able to convey and to communicate with a partner to say this is what I like this is what turns me on this is what turns me off this is what I need this is definitely what I don't need and these are the ways that generally I can get there how does that sound to you babe and then you know the other one takes turns and does the same thing so it's a real practical useful guide on how to access desire in a body that maybe has feels like it's gone to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then from there, I'm guessing it's, it's practicing communicating that to yourself, to others, yeah. and then 
hopefully finding partners that are willing to practice with you to learn right. your template and that you, yeah. And you're, that you're willing to learn their template as well and finding yeah. ways that you can uh, make space for both of your templates yeah. in the relationship. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, so for people who are listening, who are saying, well, you know, maybe if I'm single, how does this apply to me? So the thing about mismatched libido, if you're single, generally there's no pressure from another person to be sexual if it's just you and you're okay with your libido as it is it doesn't really matter that much so this book does tend to be more geared towards people in relationships that mm -hmm. said if you're a single person and you know that when you get into relationships your libido tends to drop so i'm one of those people if i start seeing somebody too often it just disappears um it's 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 an opportunity to also practice talking about this with friends. You know, you can have a have a little book club and get together with three or four of your pals and start doing the exercises. That way you don't necessarily have to be in an intimate partnership to be able to practice these exercises and talk about them. Um, you can talk about them with like-minded friends and still have the same impact because it's just getting used to, like I said, talking about sex like it matters. It doesn't matter if it's with somebody that you're having sex with or a group of friends who share similar, you know, sex-positive values. Just finding an opportunity to start talking about sex and start talking about what you're learning about yourself through these practices is really the most crucial part. So people partnered or otherwise will benefit from the exercises in this book. And I think that's the thing that I see the most of is this discordance in people saying that sex betterment is important to them, but mm -hmm. not wanting to put in the work yeah. that it takes to get there. And I mean, I'm mm. shit, I'm guilty of that myself. Like this is my field. And sometimes at the end of a day, talking about sex, or this is true for a lot of my sex worker friends and clients, mm -hmm. they're doing it all day for work. And then they get to the end of the day and they're like, I'm fucking tired. Yeah. Um, or whatever your job is. And so I think I see a lot of folks who are like, Oh, this is really important. We really want to work on our sex. It's not where we want it to be, but either unwillingness or trauma things getting in the way of really not making the time to talk about sex. Like it's important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. And that's where, you know, it, it comes down to putting in that effort because, you know, sex is not natural. You have to make time for it. You have to decide that it's worthy and valuable and you have to make it a priority. And if you don't, you know, yeah, you can live, you can have a completely functional life without doing any of this stuff if you want to, but you'll probably notice that your sex life will be not as fulfilling as you perhaps think it could or should be, you know, again, based on a criteria that's meaningful to you. But all of this stuff is covered in the book, including how to scaffold your, your erotic values, whether or not you think certain things are important and other things are not. And you might be with somebody who you're compatible with on a bunch of different levels, but your sexual values, your erotic values might be uh, you know, in some way conflicted or contrasted. And this is also something to, to consider and to talk about. It's not always just, you know, do you like, you know, do you like this? Do you like that? Do you like this? What about this? Um, it can also be, your, you know, what motivates you sexually can really make a big difference too. And so this is, I have a whole section of the book that covers erotic values and discovering what your erotic values are and then also how to, how to talk about them with people who are going to be impacted by what you discover about yourself. 
Well, it sounds like an important read for people at any stage of their uh, erotic journey. Um, and when when can folks expect the book? How can people get in touch with you and hire you and read your read your book and watch your videos and get resources? So my website is cindydarnell.com, C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. And everything's there. Uh, you can pre-order the book there. The book will be coming out uh, in June, which feels like a long time away from today, but it's really just around the corner. Um, and then I have a bunch of online classes there. And also I work with clients uh, as a clinical sexologist and, and couples counsellor. I work with clients across the world. So, um, you know, one of the benefits, I think, for me of not having been trapped in the American system is I'm not stuck by state lines. So I can work anywhere and everywhere with everybody. And, yes, you know, I, and uh, I feel some jealousy about that and I've considered... Uh, just yeah tossing away my therapy license so I don't have to be embedded in that either right I mean you know there's pros and cons on both sides but um I you know as an Australian uh therapist and then I've you know sort of done my work in the UK as well then to come to the US and to to not be eligible for those certain privileges but then I've also sort of looked at it from the other side and gone well actually you know as a sexologist it doesn't really matter um because it's you know it's the politics of insurance and stuff which we don't have to get into now but uh the the ultimate uh example being my work is 100% client-centered so I can actually work with clients wherever they are and and that really is the gist of, of why this matters so that said my online classes are there. My private consultations are there. Everything is there on my website. That's certainly the the central place to get your knowledge and, and access to me if, if you're inclined, including my clinical publications are listed up there as well. Well, Cindy, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. And again, listeners of the podcast, you can follow what I'm doing on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And please check out the advertiser stuff because the more you support the advertisers, the more you support the podcast. And uh, stay tuned, pre-order Cindy's book if it sounded appealing to you. And I'll put some of the articles that we were discussing in the show notes uh, so you can check those out as well. Thank you. Thank you.